This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue. I uh, don't have a quote this time because I honestly couldn't find one. Oh well, I tried. I am your host, Gabe Green, and I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. How's it going, man? Oh, uh, pretty good. Um, I, I'm actually, like, I'm happy to be recording. We've, <laughs> behind the scenes, uh, I've forced us to reschedule, like, four times. Uh, <laughs> but it's not because I don't want to. This is a relief because it's been just two weeks of tests after tests. So, I'm glad to, uh, for a slight reprieve from those to talk about movies. Yeah, I'm honestly half expecting to get a text from you asking if we can push it back again. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't do that. I was so close, but I couldn't. <laughs> uh, uh, so this is a show where we talk about film franchises one movie at a time, and we are currently uh, working our way through the Toy Story trilogy, and we are at Toy Story 2. Uh, before before we start on that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And uh, let's just dive right into it, James. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to be? All right. All right. So following the smashing success of Toy Story that was released in 1995, um, Disney obviously wanted to make a sequel. Uh, Pixar's head creators, John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, Lee Unkrich? Unkrich, yeah. And uh, John Rant were caught up in the production Joe. of their second... Do what? Oh, sorry. Joe, Joe Rant. Um, were caught up in the production of their second film, A Bug's Life. Um, Pete Docter was working on what would be their fourth, Monsters, Inc., uh, which also happens to be my favorite Pixar movie. Um, nice. And Disney owned the rights for Toy Story sequels and were going to make it with or without Pixar um, as one of their direct-to-video sequels that I'm sure we all remember so fondly in the 90s and 2000s. Man, those were some, some consistent gold there. Uh, Pixar obviously didn't want their brand besmirched like that, so they agreed to do it in-house. Um, they closed down their computer game division and set them to work on Toy Story 2, uh, which was originally intended to be released on video. Uh, Ash Brannon, who had been an animator on Toy Story, was chosen as uh, the director for this. And at this point in the production, it was being done in a separate building with a much smaller team than what would be usual. Uh, ideas such as uh, Woody being part of a collectible set, and you know Al, the evil toy collector, and Woody's nightmare of Andy uh, growing, you know, throwing him away—they were all concepts that were carried over from various stages of the original Toy Story script. Uh, the idea for Jesse the cowgirl came from Lasseter's wife encouraging him to add a strong female character, which was a very good call. Yeah, I—that's a really—I mean. There's nothing real I dislike about any of these, but it is nice to have someone other than Bo Peep who exists essentially just to fawn over Woody. <laughs> yeah, not in front of Buzz. <laughs> uh, in late 1997, uh, Disney, they were impressed with the quality of the production reels that were coming from uh, Toy Story 2, and they thought that maybe it should be released in theaters, uh, but this really required some pretty extensive contract negotiations. Uh, because the original deal that had been uh, figured out between Disney and Pixar had been for three original films, and they didn't want a sequel taking up one of those slots. Eventually, they settled for a deal which would be five original films, not including Toy Story 2. 
Uh, and then when it came to casting, the principal cast from Toy Story all returned, uh, along with new cast members, Joan Cusack, uh, Kelsey Grammer, and Wayne Knight as Jesse, Stinky Pete, and Al, respectively. Um, other new additions including, uh, included Estelle Harris as Mrs. Potato Head, Jody Benson as Barbie, um, writer John, uh, sorry, I keep saying John, Joe Rant <laughs> as Wheezy, and Andrew Stanton as Zerg. And, uh, it looks like uh, they got Barbie after all. Uh, I'm sure uh, that's that's Mattel, right? It makes Barbie. I think so. I think they probably begged to have her in the, in this film after turning it down last time. Yeah, they got their whole aisle of it. It's pretty funny. Um, so after A Bug's Life was finished and released in November of 1998, Lasseter came uh, took over as uh, the main director, and uh, Brandon and Lee Unkrich, who was the editor on Toy Story and uh, A Bug's Life. Uh, were put under him as co-directors. Andrew Stanton, um, who was basically kind of the core writer on all these early Pixar films, uh, was kind of brought on as a writer as well. They were very unhappy with where the story was and decided they would have to basically redo the entire thing uh, only nine months before the release date, which is really, really crazy. It was really so behind-the-scenes stories that the schedule was so severe on the crew that Roughly a third of them developed either like carpal tunnel or some kind of repetitive strain injuries, which I, I don't even know what that would have to look like to, you know, to get to that point. Um, one exhausted employee forgot to drop off his kid at daycare uh, and left her in the vehicle when he went to went into work because he was just so so completely mentally exhausted. They were able to rescue her in time, but the difficulties in the production of this film in particular, just how hard it was physically and mentally on their crew. Uh, led Pixar to completely reevaluate and change how they uh, how they structure their productions, and it, it really it led to a lot of the changes you see into um, to what is now. Uh, when you at, when you talk to Pixar employees, they're all of them are like you know very uh, basically thrilled to work there, and they say it's one like one of the best working environments out there. So it's it's interesting about what what came of such a uh, really difficult production. Uh, another near catastrophe that happened was, was during the production. One of the employees, while doing while doing this routine file deletion, uh, entered a code that started deleting all, uh, the files, uh, basically all files for Toy Story Two from all the company computers. Which I don't even know why that's an option, <laughs> but apparently it was in these early computers. Um, so they, by the time they discovered and stopped the deletion, ninety percent of the work from the last two years was just erased and they checked the backups and the backups had also failed. Um, so they had not, they had, they, they had nothing left. Uh, however, the film was able to be saved because one of the employees uh, was working from home because she had a newborn and she ha- just happened to have a full copy of the entire film on her home computer. Oh my goodness. So they were able, they were able to save the film. I think this was a, was still a fairly early stage, but you know, it was still two years into it. Yeah. I mean, I, You've got to feel like a hero after that. I have it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Randy Newman re- uh, returned to score the film, and he wrote two original songs, When She Loved Me, which was performed by Sarah McLaughlin, um, and the theme song for Woody's Roundup, which was performed by the group Riders in the Sky. So after that very troubled production, the film was released in uh, November 24th of 1999, alongside the uh, another early Pixar short, Luxo Jr., so James, I, I know we talked a bit about this in our last episode. Uh, you want to just briefly run over your history with this film and how, and uh, you know how it's what your relationship with it has been over the years? Sure. It. I can't really remember a time where I hadn't watched Toy Story two. 
I don't remember which one I saw first, one or two, um, but I think it was two, because I know growing up, I can remember the VHS case now, but that was one of those tapes that we kind of wore out by the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. I rewatched this movie more times than I could count. Uh, it felt like I was probably watching it at least once a week, and it was weird having not seen it for so many years before watching it now for this. I, again, just because of how often I watched it, whenever I was watching it now, it's like all of the lines, all of the scenes, everything was just rushing back to my head, and, and I was like able to quote it before the lines, just because like my entire childhood came back to me. So yeah, this was mm-hmm. this was a a big part of uh, growing up. That's basically what, to- what Toy Story was for me. Um, so yeah, I, I as well. I don't I don't know when I first watched this film. I, d- I know that definitely Toy Story had already like long been a favorite uh, before I saw this the first time. And over the years, I definitely pr- I preferred this one. I think part of that was simply because we had seen Toy Story so many times that we were just sick of it. Uh, but I-, I think I also I like the bigger scale and um, just you know, the much more adventurous tone this one has. Um, so yeah, up right up until about last week, if you had asked me, I would have definitely said that Toy, St- Toy Story 2... Uh, was better. Now, having seen them, you know, uh, right next to each other after not having seen both of them for a while, I'm not so sure. So, uh, just moving into the uh, main review, uh, one thing I, I really stuck out to me watching the uh, special features was how conscious uh, John Lasseter was of wanting to make sure we were entering the same world. Uh, uh, from Toy Story, you know, which is with the same characters trying to recapture that same feel. And I, I think they really did that. It just it feels like we're just coming back home and, and everything just goes along with this very familiar stride. And even though we get a lot of very similar beats, you know, such as Andy's very uh, childlike game, it never feels like they're just pandering. Oh, we saw you, you, you like this in Toy Story 1. Well, here's more of it. They're, uh, they seem they are able to find a very organic way to work these, you know, r- these uh, familiar beats into this film's story uh, and keep it moving while having, you know, these nostalgic moments for people who are fans of the first one. I think it's a, it's a very well, they're able to bring the audience uh, back into this world uh, very well. Yeah, and to me, it's just proof of what Toy Story 1 did so well. The fact that this feels familiar is because of how perfectly the original like established what is essentially this own small society. Uh, it wasn't weird seeing them do any like the way they operated never felt weird because like oh yeah this is this feels like the group that the first one introduced to me. Um, and there were moments that just like seeing how they how they handle things um, following crisis like after Woody is taken and they they're like going through it as a crime scene. It's just how do you spell FBI? <laughs> God spilla. But that whole scene and scenes like that, they they do feel like this is this is the same creative team that did the first one. This is a fully at this especially after two movies, this is a fully fleshed out and fully realized I guess mini society of these different toys. Uh and I we definitely have a a strong look at at how they operate on a day-to-day. Like, Andy's games are a regular thing, you know? Their group meetings are probably a regular thing. And it's really fun getting to see that again. 
Mm-hmm. And I think another aspect is with, with the characters. Uh, for example, Woody's arc in this film is a, a very direct continuation of, you know, the anxieties that his character had in the first film. You know, he, in that film, it was you know his jealousy over Woody coming in and supplanting his place with, with Andy. And in this film, it's his it's the fears of, you know, growing old and being a, abandoned. It's, you know, the, it's the same type of character uh, issues that he's going through. And it, I like that because very often when you come into a sequel, they'll, they'll all of a sudden be this huge character flaw in the, char- in, in the main character that simply did not exist in the previous film. It's like, oh, this has been here all along, but you know, there's no evidence of it before. It, it, it often feels kind of jarring when sequels want to have you know, character development. They'll just kind of shoehorn something entirely new in. And I think it's really cool. They they managed to find a very organic and natural way to expand, you know, his fears and flaws from the first film into this one. Yeah, that's what I was uh, thinking too. You know, whenever he he's with the other toys from the Roundup Gang, um, it almost feels like he's not in the same situation uh, as Buzz entirely. But you do see some parallels, like. He's he's not wanting to go back and accept the reality, like, I guess the reality that it, he would exist in if he were to go back. And he's seeing this other life that he, he wants now. And now, like Buzz, he's he's kind of believing in it and accepting it. Um, although, but I guess Buzz never had to accept it because, you know, he was born accepting it. Um, something else that I love is that, you know, Buzz was forced to grow as a character because of Woody, and even though Woody was a jerk throughout a lot of the first one, it, he, it was Woody who eventually helped Buzz, you know, into accepting who he was and how that was a good thing. And I love that everything Buzz does in this movie is motivated by his, like, what Woody's done for him in the previous one. Um, I mean, he even says it in the beginning, like, Woody... Where he references Woody going out, leaving the house to save his life, and all of the multiple times where he he stuck his neck out for him despite what was going on, and so that you know he's the toy he is today because of Woody, and that is his entire motivation for this movie. So I just really like how, like you said, with Woody, it this this isn't a new problem for him, and now Buzz doing what he does, everything is is building off of what the first one was. Yeah, I like how he gives him the exact same speech. You know, you're 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 a child's plaything. You're you a toy. You are a toy. <laughs> yeah, um, and I like that. Even after having seen it so many times, even in that moment, I still don't know which side of this you know argument to root for. You know, I, I you know, obviously, you know, I think they, obviously they should they should go back to Andy. They should be you know, Andy wants to play with them. But I still totally understand Woody's fears. Um, I mean, you know, because I think, you know, both of us became, you know, are still fairly young. We remember when we used to play with toys and yet you you grow out of them. So Woody's fear that Andy will, you know, grow up and no longer desire to have Woody fill that role in his life. It, it's, it's not an irrational fear. It, it's, it's, a, it's one that is completely true and that will come to pass eventually. So when offered this chance at immortality, um, you know, and notoriety, he, it, it's tempting, you know, rather than 
he knows this this heartbreak will come, and so he just wants to you know avoid that pain by also you know avoiding whatever joys and love that can happen in between uh, then and now. He just wants to cut it all off, and um, you know take take this this shot at immortality, uh, you know at at this while sacrificing you know this this chance for love and happiness right now. Um, it's you know, it's, it's a very compelling dilemma. Yeah, and then when you throw in the fact um, that the other that it's not just him, it's these other toys that rely on him as well. And even though it's a kids' movie, I remember like having my own like weird, like completely unfounded anxiety about like what the box felt like. You know, when Jesse fears going back into the box, and I could just think, oh, like, yeah. man, years and years in dark storage as a toy. Like, I mean, it's like. You know, solitary confinement for humans. That, that for whatever reason, that really stuck out to me as a kid. And so, whenever Woody stayed, I was like, "I get it, man. That sounds horrible. I would never want that to be on me to know that someone's going through that because, you know, I was returning to my, um, at the time, gleeful life. You know, being loved. Uh, I remember that, that. That's what. That's one of the things that I love about these movies is that the stakes feel real. Like you know whatever Woody decides has very real consequences for these people. And it's not, it doesn't feel like they don't feel non-existent. They don't just feel kind of like childlike either. Like, Oh, when you watch a lot of kids movies, you know, the, the worst case scenario still isn't like crazy. Um, but here, you know, it, it completely determines the fate of a lot of these characters. And so I think that helps get that much more invested in the story. And I was thinking on this rewatch, it almost feels like the worldview of the toys, like the the moral absolute. Um, I'm wondering if you got this. It feels like we're meant to believe that for a, for a toy, it is just a moral absolute truth that the the good and right thing to do is to be like the the toy of a child. Like if that is if that is the option. I mean, I think we've we hear it said multiple times in both movies. Um, I know specifically Buzz in the in the second one when he's arguing with Woody when he says, "You once told me that life isn't worth living if you're not making a, a child happy or something like that," uh, and so it just makes me feel like that that's the outlook that a toy has is that that is the ultimate goal to achieve is to be owned and loved and so I almost wonder if if that's like the morally right thing like if toys have the moral obligation to do that if that's the option yeah you there's it does raise a lot of questions you know where does this desire uh you know to be loved and played with by a kid come from are they just enslaved and brainwashed is this good for them <laughs> it could become a, a rather scary rabbit hole very quickly but they they do a good job of establishing it and you know n- Making it feel natural enough that we 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 never question that while watching. You might you know think about this like sometime late at night, but within the structure of the film, the, these kinds of motivations and desires feel completely natural. I am, we might as well uh, talk about Jesse. Um, you, like she has lived through you know what Woody's greatest fear and nightmare is. She you know she had that special kid. They grew up and then you know eventually just moved on and left her and donated her. Um, and so, you know, she is you know, a living proof of every one of his fears. 
and uh, I, I just like the, the, this film that is, you know, ostensibly directed towards children is, you know, making them question, you know, and think about, you know, what, what it's like to grow up and, and, you know, and how to move on with life at, you know, as it, as, as it leaves you behind and how to, and it teaches them, you know, how to cope or, or at least thinking about how to cope with, um, these situations as they will inevitably come. And you know, it eventually lands on that. <clears throat> it's, it's definitely, it's better to, you know, have loved and lost than never loved at all. Um, which, you know, it is always a question no matter where you go. It's, if you know, any kind of investment of time and emotions that is only going to have, um, you know, temporary is only going to be around temporarily. There's always that you fear, you know, whether it's worth it, it's worth it to um, to even engage in that, or simply just to avoid the pain, but you know, also also avoid uh, the the possible joys and love that can uh, that can come with it. And do you think do you think the pl- the film kind of has its cake and eats it too by having uh, Jesse and then just oh you can come you can come to Andy now. Do you feel like it, it should have maybe gone further in exploring that question, or I, I, I'm wondering if the film completely resolves it. I don't have I, there's no I don't really have a problem with it, but I'm, I'm just it's just I'm not sure the film fully um, resolves this idea. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's something I had never really thought about until this most recent viewing. Um, because it does, you know, I, I guess, you know, the, the idea of what it's like, what existence is like after you've moved on isn't really explored. I mean, maybe a little bit with, with the, like the characters of Jesse and Bullseye, uh, that, you know, after you moved on, you go to this, the box or, or whatever it is like. Um, but it, it feels like the movies almost treat, you know, being given away as like finality you know like not but then again i guess you can't make that direct comparison with death because you know you you don't die you just go there but i'm not sure because it it does feel as if she's if with with the way they handled it with her just being able to go over to andy now then you think okay well then after andy gives you away, you'll just go to another toy so now it, it does feel like maybe the stakes aren't quite as as big or that maybe they are overreacting that Woody is overreacting because yes Andy will grow up but you're most likely going to another kid anyways and I don't know it does feel as if this this idea of a child moving on may be a, a less of a big deal as the movie sometimes presents it I'm not sure yeah because like you know, the solution maybe it's intentional. The solution in this film is you know find another kid, and for Jesse that Jesse and Bullseye that's Andy, and then looking at the third film, not to spoil anything, but that that's also the solution that film gives is you know find someone you know if you've loved and then that that that, that connection is simply is gone now. The answer is to you know, to find someone else to invest in, which. Interestingly enough, it's also the uh, the uh, core theme of Up. Hmm. 
maybe that maybe that maybe that is the idea the, the idea is simply just to if you've you've had that connection and lost it the the, the way to healing isn't um you know seeking immortality uh, and and not risking any type of further connection like some sort of yeah, cold immortality yeah or yeah just it's, it's not it's not seeking a life of that that will simply avoid any further pain it's to just open it's just to embrace uh whatever possibilities for connection that the future brings i can buy hmm. that okay uh, but while we're on the subject of jesse can we just talk about <laughs> the when she loved me sequence <laughs> because Do we have to no joke i legitimately like there by the end of it there may have been one or two tears uh down my cheek i forgot like i mean i remembered that that there's that you know the jesse song in this and it's really sad but watching it this time it just really got to me and probably more so than any moment in the first one and no like the scene the part of that that's just the saddest to me is just as she's once again under the seatbelt and there's just that look of like ease and comfort in her smile and that's when I lost it this time because you know having seen it you know where she's going and where she's being taken to and so it's there's just there, to me there's nothing more sad than watching someone so satisfied and and content while you know the actual future and it's not at all what they think it is and, and you know seeing from under the bed this this person kind of move on from you it's man that whole scene is just so so depressing you had to go there james it's well, it's, just, it's just too good it's too well made to not talk about and what's worse is the place where the donations are being held is at the foot of the hill where the tree, the, the uh, tire swing is that they were swinging on earlier in the uh, in the montage. To just sit in the box, abandoned, looking up, but not being at essentially like the physical embodiment of you know your perfect life. Yeah, and as someone who has you know fairly recently moved on from childhood, it brings all this guilt about oh, what's happened to all my toys that I've left behind. <laughs> Well, oh no! Actually, I was about to brag on myself that I didn't get rid of them, but I've—they're in a box. In the <laughs> they're actually just in a box. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You better find some kid to give them to, James. I'm going to go call my nephew right now. I've got a bunch <laughs> of toys. Yeah, but I, just as a character, I I, do, I really enjoy uh, Jesse. I think you know, Joan Cusack brings this you know wonderful, just exuberance and joy <laughs> at life in general. And but I like that underneath all of that there is this you know deep sadness and loss that she you know she's mostly is able to cover up, but that comes you know boiling to the surface whenever you know like she can kind of uh, flip on a dime you know to where she's like as excited as can be. Then when he says, "Yeah, I'm not saying," and then she realizes you know that means another whatever couple of years in a box, and she just completely starts melting down. They, they, they're able to give her a lot of depth rather than just, you know, having her being always excited and chipper, you know, you really sense, you know, a history and, uh, with her and then between the other characters of this kind of relationship they've established. Um, and I, I don't know that I ever noticed this before, but, but watching, uh, 
Stinky Pete, without every basically every single line he says before the third act is in some way a direct manipulation of somebody. Like not nothing he says is actually what he really means. He's always you know trying to twist Woody to try and get him to stay. Uh, the scene where he ex- where Woody's trying to explain um, how his arm got torn, and 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 uh, Pete is just taking every opportunity to just come in there and try and twist it to make Andy look bad. And and you're know, watching it again, you see you know just every every line he has is some form of manipulation. I, I love how how well written it is that it, the first time through, he comes across as this as very caring you know and kind kind of leader or father figure or a grandfather figure to them. But even like, even though it works perfectly well from that perspective, the other perspective, once the reveal happens, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's not like one of those twists where they come along and you're like, wait, what, where, where did that come from? It, it, it it's, it's all there in the performance, but the performance is so good that it can work both ways. Yeah. He's definitely working everybody. I mean, he's, he's working Jesse as well. There's, there's, a, I forget exactly what it is that he says, but he's almost defensive of Woody for a little bit. But I couldn't help but think like it's almost like the Mark Antony kind of like defensiveness. It's like, oh, I come not to you know that that style where you're you're on the surface defending somebody, but you know that everything you're saying is kind of in manipulation. And so yeah, every line from him, whether he's talking to Woody or Jesse, he's kind of playing each other or or playing both of them to all kind of lead up to his perfect scenario where Woody stays and everyone's happy. Mark Antony? Uh, Julius Caesar? Well, yeah, I know who he is, but I'm not familiar with that, uh, that that name being used in that way. The friends, friends, Roman countrymen? Is this, is this like part of the, 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 Shakespeare's play or something? Yeah. Okay. The, the whole, like, I come to bury Caesar, not praise him. Hmm. I have not seen that. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a great speech where he's essentially, like, on the surface level, seemingly defending Caesar, but in reality, completely turning everyone against him. And he's doing it in a way where he's, like, above reproach from Caesar. Mm. It's, it's really good. And honestly, the, the more I think about it, that's one of my favorite types of uh, like cinematic or theatrical conversations is when you know there's these multiple layers going on. And the Last Jedi. Yeah, that has it. Or I was thinking, I was thinking about Batman v Superman, this, the, the conversations between us, uh, Senator Finch and uh, Lex Luthor, cool. like for everything means multiple. Every word said means multiple things. It's just this kind of power struggle going on underneath. This one's a lot more a lot more subtle than that, but it's always great to see it, especially in, in a you know children's film. And Kelsey Grammer is just great. The fact that you you buy every layer of the, of what he's doing, like no matter, no matter like whether you're looking at it, you know looking at him as this evil manipulative person or simply as a kindly as a kindly you know, grandfather figure, both of it works. But then when he comes full out and, and is just evil, you know you completely buy that as well. And you know, his his speech, um, he's like, I'll tell you what's not fair: spending an eternity on a dime store shelf, um, like you you almost feel sorry for him right there you, know, you realize this this guy he's never even had the chance that woody and jesse had he's never even known that love like you know he came into existence he was made and all he's known is rejection 
he's never even had the chance to experience this connection with the child that has that's, you know that's changed uh, Woody and Jesse. So you know, he's he's almost sympathetic in that way. Like he he he's 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 only had rejection in all his life, and now he's finally has this chance to to you know have some form of acceptance, have some form of uh, you know fame and adulation. Of course, he's going to try and take it. You know, his problem, obviously, is that he's willing to drag everyone else down with him. He doesn't care what they want, but he's you know he's not evil in that sense. Yeah, the way I looked at him kind of changed. Um, you know, as a kid, you see things a lot more black and white, and you know, Woody and Jesse are good guys, and he's a bad guy, especially after you've seen it and you rewatch it, and that's just who he is. And then watching it now, I remember. One of my problems thinking about it as I was watching was, you know, ah, I mean, if if Jesse and Bullseye are able to just kind of be like, okay, yeah, let's go to Andy. Like, why why is that not there for Stinky Pete? Like, why can he not just be like, okay, yeah? And it is when you think about it, like he's 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 always seen this kind of like seen others receive that love, but never received it himself. And this, the idea that he had never, that he's in mint condition, never left the box, that like meant so much more to me on this viewing than ever before. Like, that's not just this, it it doesn't feel like it exists just so that he's not, you know, on your radar to suspect things like who turned it off and things like that. I think there's a lot of meaning behind that. There's, there's symbolism. There's, he's always had that barrier that none of these other people have had, um, He's never been able to exist fulfilling like what what seems to be like the ultimate fulfillment of a toy to be loved. He's never been able to taste that before. Uh, so you do kind of understand that when he's given the option to be on display and be, you know, just people look at you. Because, I mean, obviously he's a he's clearly very intelligent and aware of of his surroundings and what's going on. And he, he knows about this this collection that's sought after and, and what it would mean to be displayed. It, it makes sense why he would look at that and pick that over. Well, let's just go over to Andy's because he's never felt that he's never loved his box. He's never understood what that means. So his decision to, to ultimately be an antagonist to the end made a lot more sense to me now and was a lot more sympathetic. Yeah. I guess the moral of the story is, Toy collectors who keep their toys in boxes are evil and destroy lives. You're breeding psychopaths, people. <laughs> um, and this brings me to the, I guess the, the 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 other main character, Buzz, which I think is one of my basically only big problems with this film. And, and the uh, the makers acknowledge us watching the special features. They they were acknowledging how difficult it was to figure out you know, what to do with Buzz because, you know, he's, he, he's arrived at the end of the first film. You know, he's, he started out as this, you know, delusional person with who, who had this, you know, fan, fan, uh, fantasy mission, uh, kind of programmed into him. And now that that's gone, you know, he decides, you know, his mission now is, is Andy that, you know, he still has that, you know, the mind of, a, you know, the military of you know, a military person. So now his mission is to serve, you know, serve and, um, be there for Andy. So for, they, they, they really had a hard time figuring out what to do with him because so much of what made Buzz in the first film so great was, <laughs> was that delusion. You know, almost all that, all the humor surrounding his character and, and all the character growth 
was, you know, coming from, you know, that, that state of delusion to discovering his true mission in life. And so basically their solution in this film was with, with what to do with Buzz was to uh, get another Buzz who has basically this exact same arc as he did in the first one. Um, and it's not bad. It's, it's not, it's not badly done. It's, it, it's, it, you know, it's kept to this, to relegate to the side plot. It doesn't became, it doesn't become the entire plot and they find enough funny and very clever things to do with the character so that, you know, his time on the time of, on screen we have with the new buzz is very entertaining. But I really noticed it this time around is that there is really no dramatic core to the entire si- like side of the film that is surrounding Buzz and his gaggle of toys that's going off to rescue Woody. There really is there's no real growth or arc on the, in that in that entire like half of the film. The entire dramatic core of the film is centered entirely on uh, Woody and the other and uh, the other three characters, three or four characters in Al's apartment. And I, it's funny because as a kid. I I always liked it when you know we would cut out to the the toys going on their crazy adventures you know crossing the road or uh, getting lost in Al's toy barn, and I would always get kind of bored whenever they would come back to the apartment. But now that now as an adult watching it again, I was always I was you know always completely enthralled whenever with Woody and the other toys in um in the apartment, and I would get kind of get start to get restless when we would cut back to these toys you know having their little shenanigans. Um. Like we do have, like there, we do have Rex's whole kind of kind of video game obsession and his. I don't even know if I can call it an art because there's no real nothing really dramatic happening. It's just kind of him being ridiculous. Uh, so you have that whole thing with Rex and Buzz and Zerg, but there really is no you know dramatic. Uh, there's nothing. There's no, nothing thematic or, or dramatic happening on that entire side of the film, and. I don't think it it doesn't definitely make it a bad film. It doesn't. I don't know if it even hurts the film that much because everything that happens is is very entertaining. And I think most importantly, it it's very it moves very well. There, none every one of the gags and sequences that happen are very well paced and fairly short. Um, so yeah, it's not a huge complaint, but it does it it does make it feel a little slight at times. Yeah, again. It is especially coming immediately after the first one, which we just talked about how perfectly tight that story is. Uh, and to have portions of this movie just kind of feel like they're there, they're very well done, they're super entertaining, but they just, they aren't 100% necessary and they don't completely serve a purpose. And, you know, coming hot off the heels of a movie that just does that to perfection, it is a little bit more noticeable. And I was trying to think of like, ways that that I think that could be improved um, and to me it would almost make sense if I, I wouldn't want Buzz to ever actually think hey maybe I should just stay here let Aunt, or Woody go off and do his thing um, and I'll be you know the the favorite now but almost just kind of have that idea not him in the back of his mind like he keep his motivations for going going after him the same, you know, he did this for me and now I have to do this for him. But maybe has some like internal struggles where should this fail, you know, he is the favorite. Because we see things have, have defaulted defaulted back to Woody again and um 
Woody was the one he was, I mean, I know it was cowboy camp he was going to, but even still, you know, Woody was the one he was, uh, he was going to bring. And it, it seems like the, he's, he's the overall favorite again. So it'd almost be weird to flip the script and have, have Buzz be the one kind of tempted by this. Um, and then just kind of have that there. And then, and then maybe find resolution of that whenever he does see the other, the other Buzz and how deluded he is. And that would kind of make Woody's saving of him that much more, like just be a reminder, like, oh yeah, this is who I was and Woody did this for me. And like, that could be maybe a resolution for, for this inner conflict that we could have had going on in him for his side of the plot. Yeah. Like they do very, very briefly for like 30 seconds, do something where we are, we are faced with Woody's rejection of Andy and, and, and the toys rescue mission and Buzz is like, okay, well, we, you know, even though know, this is sad, but we still have our job to do. We still, ha- our job is to make Andy happy, and we ha- we have to get back in time uh, for him to get home, so that he, even though Woody's not there, we can be there for him because that's our job. And I, I don't know what dramatic, what more dramatic potential could come out of that choice. They, you know, it only it only lasts all over you know thirty seconds before Woody watches Woody watches the TV and decides you know what I'd rather have Andy. Um, hmm. I, I, you know, I, I I I understand what you said, but I have a hard time imagining Buzz as he is you know going down that route, especially since he doesn't have that lifelong connection that Woody had. Like Woody's jealousy is a lot more understandable because you know he's been with Andy all his life. Whereas Buzz has only been there, you know, maybe about a year. So he wouldn't have that, that, that deep connection to being Andy's favorite that Woody had. And looking, you know, Toy Story 3 has that same issue of what to do with Buzz. And they, they, they do a similar thing that they did here. Maybe it's just the character of Buzz only works for that one arc. Once he, once he accepts, um, I guess, his, uh, you know, the, the truth... He kind of he's just there to be funny, yeah. And then you know, obviously none of the other side toys like they, like yeah, they, they try to do something with Rex, but it doesn't really mean a lot. Like none of the other side toys really have that deep dramatic potential. Maybe a uh, Potato Head and uh, Mr. Potato could have like marital troubles or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a spud in a marriage. I'm a spud in a marriage. <laughs> they make room for the single guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Honestly, I could um, watch a movie about those two. It could have zero depth at all, and I'd probably be thoroughly entertained. So, what do you? Uh, I guess while we're actually talking about it, what do you think about the the difference in? I guess the structure and the way the movie is laid out. It's definitely bigger in scale, and we actually do, you know, have like an A A plot and a B plot kind of, which is something that the first one didn't really have. Um, I know you you said before. Uh, earlier that you liked you know you liked this as a kid more just because of the the bigger adventurous feel of it um, what do you think about that now of having like these two running stories and expanding the scope mm-hmm. um, structurally aside from obviously the, the dramatic problems we had with the B plot I really like it. I think like just the idea of you know having the characters on a rescue, a mission to rescue Woody, I think it is, you know, structurally very sound. And I think it's, it's played very well. You know, it's the pacing. It never, it never um, favors one side too much over the other. It feels like we balance back and forth and very well. Um, and 
just the the way they use the uh, the extra technology, like sequences like the um the the crossing the, the uh <laughs> the road or uh the, the entire climax in the end with the all the conveyor belts, which I thought was how airports really worked for a while. Um, oh, me too. And yeah, and chasing the jet, all of that it looks great, and they they make great use of this you know this added these added abilities, and I think the sequences are very well put together. Um, so yeah, I. I, I really do enjoy that that the, just the added scale of potential, and again again aside aside from the fact that they, they don't add a secondary dramatic, uh, 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 secondary dramatic plot, I think just the way everything else is used, the grander scale is is uh, very well done. Yeah, it seems like with a lot of a lot of films, it's just it's a lot easier to keep everything focused and and really just tight and perfect. Um, if you don't have to separate, if you're not having to try to find ways to balance two different um, plots going on, um, I think and I'm pretty sure you agree. You know, despite almost the entire world claiming Empire is the best, I absolutely love Empire. But A New Hope is actually my favorite. Yep, same here. Partially because I, it it seems like when you do separate that the potential for problems, even only minor ones, just get that much bigger, you know, because you do have that added wrinkle of having to find a balance, having to make this side mean as much as this side. And I just, (gasps) I just realized Toy Story 2 is the Empire Strikes Back. It really is. In a lot of ways, there's, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of similarities the core dramatic uh, stuff is happening in this singular location with our main character. Then our side characters are going off having these like complete a bunch, whole bunch of random little adventures. However, I think empire does it a little bit better because at least there is the, 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 the the budding romance between Leia and Han gives it some, you know, dramatic heft. Yeah. Um, But so I think that's, that's part of why I would say put the new hope and toy story here have just in terms of the script and the structure like I do think the first one in both is a, is a bit stronger just because of how more focus is but with that being said like you said it's never boring the pacing for a movie that has two different stories running aside like alongside each other this movie moves incredibly well and, and something I've noticed is the way they move back and forth between the plots is pretty perfect like they know exactly how long to spend with one and how long to spend with the other there are times where we spend you know a good bit of extended time with woody and then we'll spend you know a good bit of time with buzz and the others and then there'll be times where we're just kind of cutting between the two and especially with with the scene going to al's toy barn we see the man show up to fix woody and he's just about to start working and then we cut and and then he says, you know, he'll be just like new. And then we transition to the new toy sale. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and we move with them for a little bit and he sees the buzz aisle. And then we kind of go back to Woody being fixed. It, it's moving between the two really, really well. <laughs> and what's funny is like it, it does that for a good bit, like a good bit of time. And then you realize that physically the only thing that's moved is they've gone down a couple of aisles and then they cross the street. But it feels like this... Over the course of all of this back and forth, we've seen, you know, huge, huge landscapes crossed and major development made. But 
that's just something that's that I've always found funny about like the whole trilogy is when you really think about the grand scheme of things physically we're barely moving anywhere but dramatically you've got all of these different things happening and it it feels so big but but yeah I think the way it finds balance between how long to stay with Buzz and how long to stay with Woody it's it's really good and to think that this was originally going to be a made-for-tv or a direct-to-video film is is crazy because direct-to-video movies do not deserve this kind of quality yeah, you, Lee Anchorage is a very, very good editor. You brought up the uh, the uh, cleaner, and I, that that sequence really has no real consequence, but is one of my favorite scenes in any Pixar film. Just like you, this is this aged craftsman who is so loving and skilled in his work, and you see his, his awesome little uh, toolkit with all these tiny little drawers and a tiny little hat rack and just I could I could watch him repairing toy animated toys just for hours on end and the 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 cue uh Randy Newman's musical score uh, theme for the cleaner is is also one of Pixar's best it's just this delightful little tinkling melody that just uh, makes the, the whole sequence feel so magical it's so weird that you're saying that because that moment's always been for me like one of those moments that I love, but I was just sure that no one, like, there's no way. I mean, I'm sure people like this just because the movie's great, but that scene has stuck out to me. And I started to, to I guess, be, uh, I, well, I, I was pretty much in the same boat as you were whenever you were saying, you know, the sound design of the first one was so, was almost Star Wars levels of iconic for you. Because watching this, like, the sound it makes as he increases his magnifying glass or, uh, um, and the airbrush sound and the sound of the the machine starting to turn on, like all of that, it was weird how how much of those sounds were like, oh my goodness, I used to hear this every week as a kid, like all of these little clicks and and strokes of the brush. And even though it has been years and there, you know, I don't just often just sit back and think about Toy Story 2, but one of the constants from my childhood to now is randomly I'll just start humming or whistling that theme. Just whether I'm at work or doing whatever, I, I will whistle or hum the uh, the cleaners or the repairments theme. Just it's just never left my head. It's so watching it again, I'm like oh man, uh, I remember this. Yeah, it's just one of those little transcendent bits of art that uh that happen occasionally in movies. I mean, like regardless of how how it how the rest of the film is, like bits like that, I always love finding them that they just that just stand on their own so well. Um, yeah, and, and the line "You can't rush art" is has been used uh, <laughs> far more times than I can count. Uh, you know, in our family, whenever someone's trying to hurry someone up. Yep, exactly the same here. There, there are multiple times. You know, whether someone's getting dressed or you know trying to get ready, all the time. That that is a uh, an oft quoted line here. Yeah, and it's for that, and that the character is uh from uh, the short. The Pixar short that uh, I I think it came out right around a Bug's Life uh, called Jerry's Game, where two old men play, or no, one old man is playing himself with chess. It's, it's the exact same character design. So that's probably that probably came from back from when it was a uh, a uh, directed DVD film. And, right. and speaking of the shorts, did you uh, notice the short as they're changing through the channels, trying to get back to Alice Toy Barn? Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's all Pixar shorts. Yeah. There's like it, all the channels just about like, or at least, at least half of them are, are different various Pixar shorts. I guess the last thing is uh, 
Uh, do, do you feel like there's a significant um, improvement in the animation? I, I, I certainly did. I thought like the people, the humans, while definitely not perfect, looked a lot better. Uh, just the, the the various textures that aren't plastic <laughs> looked a lot more real. I, I, I know I really loved how the fact that they had to have a still camera in the first one made, made, made the, the made so they had to create you know these very dynamic images and, and really strong compositions. You don't have that so much here, but I I, I think it, I I feel it was kind of worth it. Just you know to I think that that extra bit of energy behind the camera also brought a lot of up really enjoyable uh, elements. Yeah, it feels it feels like that was kind of when Pixar was moving into in terms of their visual style into maybe more familiar territory for you know for us watching it now. Um, and yeah, just with the improvement in animation, I I easily see a, a huge difference. Um, you know, that's not an insult at all to the original. It, it was incredibly groundbreaking, but you know the humans aren't so stiff and their their skin somewhat resembles skin instead of hard plastic <laughs> now and and then even with the toys i think one of my only complaints about the the way the toys looked in the original was and it, and it happened sometimes with woody was where it just felt like he was moving from one expression to the other really quickly like there was no real you wouldn't see his cheeks kind of move from one expression to the other he just kind of changed and and here with all the toys, it, it felt like their faces were moving a lot more fluidly and um, their lips matched up a lot better with what they were saying. And they just felt, the expressions felt more real. I, I think with the original, there wasn't a whole lot of nuance because you really couldn't have it. But here, um, because they can they can change tinier things now with the face, like they can they can make the, the expressions a lot more subtle this time. Um, so I think I think the animation was definitely a big improvement, and it helped with some of the more dramatic moments, just be a, because they were able to have the characters that much more realistically expressive. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I want to ask you is, uh, th- th- watching it this time, I-, I seem to remember this film having a lot more thematic depth than I think it actually has. Now, this is not to say it doesn't have any. I think, you know, the ideas of, you know, the, the uh, you know, embracing love and companionship in, in the face of inevitable loss and abandonment. I think those, that, that idea is more than enough to sustain a feature film. But when I was sitting down to try and try and write my notes um, for the podcast, I was having a really hard time of, uh, you know, thinking of what dramatic elements to discuss because, the more I think about it, I don't know that there really are any outside of that one singular idea. Um, and it was, I just, I just had a really hard time. You, know, I was like kind of panicking. Like I've only gotten, I, I can only think of this one idea to talk about. What, what are we going to use to fill our time? But and I, I don't, I don't think this is like a, a, like a huge flaw with the film. I think it's more of just when you look at most Pixar films, most of them do juggle these multiple thematic elements and character arcs and themes and ideas. And it, it just, it feels almost odd coming to this film, which only has one. And obviously and I know it's not fair to you know, j- judge a film by future films, but it just, it just, it just felt odd. Did you notice that at all? Um, kind of, you know, I, I think, I think one of the benefits of the first one was that you had two characters who were going through their own like growths and changes and, um, 
you were kind of able to, you know, attach ideas and themes and, and use use their arcs to facilitate that. Whereas with here, kind of what we said a little bit is Buzz, you know, he's he's the character by by the end of this movie, he's the character he was at the beginning. Um, and everything is kind of all, most of the depth is kind of confined to um, Al's apartment. And so mm-hmm. you don't really have as much room in areas. I, I guess you do have just as much room, but they, they didn't end up really putting a whole lot of dramatic material into um, the B plot. Uh, so yeah, and with Pixar today, you know, like there's, there's just so much going on, but I don't know. I feel like they explored this enough to where it, it wasn't really noticeable to me though, just because you have Woody, but like, you know, trying to find this balance or not balance, but trying like deciding between, you know, seeing things the way as a prox- prospector sees them. And, you know, is this worth it to go back to, uh, and wrestling with, you know, his former life and, and what the best option is and seeing, seeing Jesse, who's, you know, whether it's fair or not, you know, just projecting all of her anger onto Woody because he is the reason that she's going to be, you know, abandoned yet, you know, yet again. And then everything that the prospector is dealing with, with just almost being completely cut off from from the kind of emotions that they're feeling because he's never had that chance. I, I feel like all of these characters have enough going on within themselves that it doesn't really feel like I'm lacking the depth of other ones. Even it, It's just maybe a bit more, maybe not more focused, but it's focused enough to where it doesn't feel like I'm being shortchanged even by Pixar standards. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it's actually a criticism. It just, maybe it just feels like a bit slight in the, compared to what Pixar normally does, which there was no normal for Pixar at that time. So it can't, I can't really use that as a criticism, but yeah, it's just, just something that stuck out to me this time. Well, I think that is about, about does it for what I had to, uh, to talk about. I, I mean, I, Obviously, I probably should mention just the the returning voice cast just continues to be excellent and hilarious. You know, uh, Wally Wally Shawn and uh, Don Rickles, John Ratzenberger—they're all you know very funny. And uh, obviously, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen continue to you know have amazing chemistry. Um, but yeah, I think we, we ranted enough about them in the last episode. It also, I mean, we we talked a little bit about them, but I also think it's it's really impressive that. Every new cast member is able to bring, and at least for me, in a singular film, like the exact same amount of like iconic sounding voice and and mannerisms as as everybody returning. And that was one of the things because I grew up with this one more than the original. Uh, I had always kind of viewed characters like Jesse and Bullseye and Mrs. Potato Head as you know like equally important characters as everyone else and just as integral because you know, like I said it, it was almost weird to when, when we would rent the original to go back and to realize oh wait that's right Mrs. Potato Head and Jesse like they aren't actually in this um, and so to have this new cast come in and just sound just as perfect as everyone else um, they continue to cast just the right people yeah alright um, so before we close out on the uh, on our review I want to ask what is your star rating for um Toy Story 2. Um, it, 
I was trying to think of this of, of where I would ultimately land on it because I, I think we mentioned last week that Toy Story may have been the only episode where we went start to finish without bringing up anything really negative at all. And, you know, that that's not the, the same can't be said for Toy Story 2 uh, because you do kind of have this this plot, this side plot that's very, very entertaining, but ultimately, you know, not at the same level as, as what it's running parallel to. But even with that being said, I, I'm still so entertained by it. And I, I do enjoy the bigger scale here. Um, I do get a more like adventurous and fun tone overall from this one. And I don't know if I would say I enjoy watching it more, but there are just moments where, and maybe this is my own personal nostalgia kind of coming into play, but it's almost a more fun adventure to watch because you've got this bigger cast that's not actually, you know, left behind this whole time. You've got this group dynamic this time around and technology is able to make these sequences that weren't possible in the first one. So I still, while it, while it did, you know, like, while there is actual room for criticism in this one, where the first one was completely above it entirely, it just makes up for that with all these new things that I love. That I I couldn't really because I, I want to go by half stars, and I couldn't bring myself to go down to four and a half. So, despite it on a technical level not being with Toy Story one, I I still go five stars. Okay, well I'm going to be principal and take off a half star for my criticisms. So yeah, uh, th- th- uh, this one. I mean, it's still it's a fantastic sequel. It you know, it more than justifies its reason for existing. You know, it it carries these characters and and you know continues their dramatic growth um, in very organic ways and compelling ways. And even the parts that aren't necessarily dramatic are you know highly entertaining. So I'll give it a, a four point five um, as opposed to Toy Story's five stars. You monster. I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, after its initial release, uh, it grossed $497 million on its uh, $900 million budget. Uh, like uh, its predecessor, it received pretty much universal... Pretty much universal. Uh, <laughs> like its predecessor, it received pretty much universal praise. Um, I think many people say, say it either equaled or surpassed the first one. Uh, it's gone on to join Toy Story as one of the very few films with the coveted 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, when She Loved Me was nominated for Best Original Song, but lost to Phil Collins' You'll Be In My Heart from uh, Disney's other animated film that year, uh, Tarzan. It's so unjust. <laughs> uh, so yeah, th- as far as this film's legacy, I think it's pretty well accepted as as just one of those great sequels. Um you know, as I said, that that either either stands right alongside or sometimes even surpasses the original. A lot of people consider this to be better. I, uh, up until last week, I considered this to be better than Toy Story. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's definitely its legacy is is pretty much right alongside the first one. It's, it's just one of those great sequels that everyone holds up. You know, whenever someone says something stupid like sequel, sequels are never as good, people hold this one up, and rightfully so. Even though I, <laughs> we just said that I think it's inferior, I still think it it is what you know, a, a fantastic sequel. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, it is so like, to me, it's it weird to see that, you know, like one of the most highly regarded, you know, films and sequels and ultimately, you know, 
as we'll talk about next week, trilogies, uh, is just this children's, I, I guess, quote unquote, children's uh, series. But whenever they're this good, they they completely earn it, and and I am happy. Like it, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all when someone says that one is better than two or that two is better than one. Um, just because of how great they are, I'm just glad that both are kind of universally held up as these fantastic films and and continue to be held in the same regard. Yep. All right. Um, so that was our review for Toy Story 2. Again, if you enjoy this, I'd like to ask you, please go and rate reviews on iTunes. Uh, it would be very helpful. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We're there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at FranchisePod. Uh, where can people follow you, James? Um, so primarily two places. One would be Letterboxd, where I rate and review all the new films that I see, uh, as well as sometimes some older ones that I finally catch up to. Um, I'm there as J.L. Hamry, uh, J-L-H-A-M-R-I. As well as um, Article Asylum, you can find us there at articleasylum.wordpress.com, where we're primarily a DC site, but we do a lot of other just pop culture um, articles as well. So you can find some of the stuff I've written over there. And uh, I am also on Letterboxd as Gabriel Green, and I am on Twitter, and I will occasionally tweet. Um, so if you want to follow me there, I'm at Gabe A Green. So next week we will be discussing Toy Story 3, which I cannot wait for because, I mean, this is liable to uh, <laughs> to prove false once again, but it is currently my favorite of the Toy Story films. Uh, who knows what anything can happen in between uh, now and next week. It might turn out to be terrible. I hope not. No. <laughs> not. No. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about next week, and I could not be more excited. Yeah, I mean, my goodness. If, if I had to, you know, have a single tissue to... To maybe wipe a cheek once in a in Toy Story 2. I, I'll bring the box for next week. Yes, many, many uh, very manly tears will be shed. Absolutely. Completely justified. So, until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Ah, uh, ma'am, ma'am, I, I just wanted to say that you're a bright young woman with a beautiful yarn full of hair. Or uh, hair full of yarn. Uh, uh, I, I must go. And as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're gonna see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend.